On May 7, 2009, WAGP was granted a license by the Federal Communications Commission to serve the public interest as a public trustee until December 1, 2011. Our license will expire on December 1, 2011, and we must file an application for license renewal with the FCC on August 1, 2011. When filed, a copy of this application will be available for public inspection during our regular business hours. It contains information concerning the station's performance during the last two years. Individuals who wish to advise the FCC of facts relating to our renewal application and to whether this station has operated in the public interest should file comments and petitions with the Commission by November 1, 2011. Further information concerning the Commission's broadcast license renewal process is available at 638 Paris Island Gateway, Beaufort, or may be obtained from the FCC, Washington, D.C., 20554. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome, as always, to the Bible Line. For the next hour, we'll be taking your questions as it may relate to your personal life, your study of Scripture, your ministry, and your local assembly. And if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. You can call us here directly at 525-1859 or toll-free at 877-WAGP980. When you call, you can simply dictate your question, as probably most people feel comfortable doing those some like to go on the air live and simply uh dialogue with us and we uh, always enjoy that and prefer that other people email us here directly into the studio and they wait for their question to be responded to the email address is tbl for the bible line at net. rick great to be here today and uh, i know i see a number of questions have already come in indeed pastor and uh, you mentioned email and that's how this one came in uh, this person writes i am baptized catholic but have recently run into some issues with the catholic church due to the fact that i became catholic after being married but never had my marriage validated by the church so now i cannot receive communion and i'm told that i'm living in a state of mortal sin out of communion with god what do you think about this? Does the Bible indicate that I have to be married in a church? What denominations do you recommend? I am conservative and have strong conservative views regarding abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, etc., and therefore have problems with liberal denominations like Episcopalians and Presbyterians, etc., that condone such things. What else is left? Any suggestions for local, and I guess this person is in Rhode Island, for local Rhode Island churches? Well, it's a great question, and I, I take it they're listening to the broadcast there in Rhode Island, and 
Uh, I think the most important thing, of course, is that you've received Christ as your personal Savior. And I'm assuming uh, that hopefully that has happened. If you have some questions, uh, having been raised Catholic, what that means, you might want to go to our website, searchthescriptures.org, and listen to the presentation, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? I think you'll find that very, very helpful. But with that being said, I, I think you're in a transition place in your life. You're beginning to read the scripture and you're seeing some maybe inconsistency between what your particular local church is teaching and what you're reading in the Holy Word of God. And and this is not simply just a Catholic uh, issue. This is an issue today with many, many uh, churches of all different stripes, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, you name it. You really can't go by the stripe anymore. You need to uh, do a personal analysis of each local assembly and um, ask, do they believe in the Bible as the infallible word of God, as the sole basis by which we make our moral decisions and dictates for life? Or is there some other source of authority outside of Scripture? Uh, During the time of the Protestant Reformation, there were a number of uh, uh, sayings, so to speak, that summarized uh, what the Reformers were trying to emphasize. Sayings like sola deo gloria, that is, to the glory of God alone. Um, The Reformers were intent on making sure that not man, but God was indeed the one who's glorified. Sola scriptura was another one, that is, scripture alone that there is no source outside of the Word of God by which we uh, judge what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, that Scripture alone must be our final authority. And, of course, this is a major point of rub uh, between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, Catholics believe above and beyond the Holy Scripture. There is the authority of the Church, and not to mention that what they would call the the magisterium, the teaching order of the church is the sole uh, source of interpretation of the Holy Scripture. Uh, the reformers uh, would say, no, that's not really what the scriptures say. Jesus implied that you could read the Bible and you could understand it and apply it for yourself. And I believe that's true. That's not to discount historical theology uh, That's not to discount uh, how people have understood the scriptures for a few thousand years. I often say if it's new, it's not true. Uh, If you see something, some interpretation of the word of God that no one else has seen in a few thousand years, you probably have misunderstood what God has plainly recorded. But, you know, there was a number of issues here. You're talking about, you know, mortal venial sin. Uh, Should I be married in a church? Well, marriage is a covenant. Most people, when they... Uh, want to get married. Even today, they know the church has something to do with it. They want to find a pastor or they want to have it in a church building because they know somehow God is involved in the whole process. And indeed he is. Uh, What God has joined together, let no man separate. God is the one who brings two people together in a marriage covenant. The fact that you are married outside of the church is inconsequential. You are married if you've made a covenant commitment before God to another woman, uh, whether your church acknowledges that or not. And I think what's important at this point in your life is that you find a Bible-believing church where a pastor opens the scriptures, and uh, that becomes his uh, basis for uh, evaluating uh, what's true and what's not. Uh, If... um, 
it, uh, what I'll try to do is uh, email this person back. I think we have an email address, and I'll give us su- some suggestions of uh, some evangelical churches in that broadcast area that hopefully they will find uh, helpful or maybe a starting point. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Um, this uh, particular question that we had just dictated now uh, was given uh, to um, me in my Sunday school class. So uh, let right. me go ahead and uh, read that to you because I deferred to you. All so, right. okay. Um, so, would it be right and holy and acceptable to God for a Christian singing group like uh, Moody Bible or Liberty University Choirs to perform in a concert uh, with a, a secular singer like Madonna or the Jackson Five? for the sake of witnessing to the unsaved. Would that be true worship, and can gospel songs be joined with ungodly songs in the spirit of trying to reach everyone? Uh, If it is right, who would plan something like this, and uh, would it be a pastor? That's really a very, very good question. Um, Here's the general principle and guideline that God gives in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me just turn there for a moment. We often apply this simply to marriage, but really the application, uh, marriage is certainly a a legitimate application from it, but the context is dealing with uh, believers and unbelievers and how we are to relate one to another. Um, God says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Uh, That would certainly apply to marriage for a, a Christian to marry an unbeliever. Uh, is certainly out of the will of God. That's taught in the Old Testament. It's certainly affirmed in the New Testament in other passages like 1 Corinthians 7. But here he says, you know, in a general sense, this is a a very important dictum for God's people to hear. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Does that mean that we don't care about unbelievers, that we don't uh, hang out with unbelievers, that we don't try to reach unbelievers for Christ? Obviously not. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He's commissioned us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. But don't be bound together with them. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in in common with an unbeliever? They're rhetorical questions. Implied answer, nothing. We don't really have anything in common with an unbeliever, whether that's music or whatever it might be, because our value system is antithetical to the value system of the world, because this world system, Ephesians 2 tells us, is being energized by the prince of the power of the air, by Satan himself. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. Uh, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So there is to be contact without contamination. That's the biblical principle. Jesus was separate from sinners. Hebrews uh, 7 affirms that. But at the same time as Luke 7 affirms, he was a friend of sinners. So there's contact without contamination. So to get to your specific illustration, uh, a Christian group like Liberty University or Moody performing with Madonna, to me, I can't even conceive it. 
uh, not in the name of reaching people for Christ, because Madonna represents a value system that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-morality. It's totally uh, different from what we espouse. And to be able to use a Madonna to try to reach reach people for Christ is really to condone her lifestyle. Uh, It's very, very unwise. Not to mention she, I doubt, would ever want to perform on the same stage with somebody like Liberty University. But but it's a valid question because sometimes in lesser venues, uh, Christians have tried to mix all in the name of reaching people for the Lord. Look, God's either all-powerful or he's not. He's either involved in bringing people to Christ or he's not. And I'm not saying we can't be creative in terms of our outreach and uh, trying to figure out how to get into places where lost people are at. When we were uh, on, my wife and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we used to take 100, 150 students with us from Duke University every year down to a conference in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, Our spring break at Duke always fell the week of bike week. And there would be 150,000 motorcyclists who would come in and quite a variety of people from lawyers who would put on their leather coat once a year and uh, to some hardcore bikers. But the beaches were packed. And so we were trying to figure out ways in which we could reach these people for Christ. So we did like a, a tug of war. Uh, on the beach, we did what we called slow motion football, uh, where people dressed up absurdly uh, and did these incredible football plays in slow motion. And before long, we had crowds of several hundred people. And then we would stand up and say, we're here with a Christian organization. Uh, the reason we're putting this on today is to be able to talk to people about Christianity and Jesus Christ and the difference he can make in your life. And if you'd like to hang around and talk, we would love to talk to you. You know, you might have 300 people, but when it was all over 30 people would hang around and talk and we'd end up sharing the gospel and trying to win those people to Christ. So we had contact without contamination. We didn't say, well, hey, let's get a case of beer and we'll drink with these people. Um, which is what some people are almost advocating in our day. MacArthur came out with an article a week or so ago about the reform, the restless, and uh, the drinkers, I guess. Uh, you know, the, 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 the new edge on the reform movement in the United States is uh, the use of alcohol in outreach and in Bible studies and, and other things. Um, and it's, it's just terrible. You, you don't compromise truth in order to spread truth, and uh, that's what's happening today. But it's a good question, and I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Yes, I'd like to ask a question. I know that um, Paul was blinded on the Damascus Road, and uh, my question was somebody once told me that he was taught by Christ himself after that. Is that true? That um, Paul was blinded a second time after the Damascus Road? No, that he was taught by Christ Himself. Uh, after yeah, he was I, I think I think uh, I think that's a fair uh, assumption. Um, certainly, the Lord ministered to him and opened the Scriptures to him. Um, here's the thing: on the Damascus Road, and this is one of Paul's arguments in First Corinthians nine and in other passages of Scripture. To be an apostle, to be an apostle, 
you had to have had an encounter with the risen Christ. Uh, You couldn't um, be self-appointed. You were appointed by the resurrected Lord. And Paul could claim such an encounter uh, that it was not man who called him. He didn't receive his gospel. He argues in Galatians from man. He received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. So he didn't get it secondhand. Peter and John and James didn't come and say, well, Paul, let me explain the plan of salvation to you and, and what Jesus the Messiah has come to do. No, his argument is, I got it firsthand. So certainly as it relates to the gospel, there's no dispute there in light of what we read in Galatians 2 that, yes, he received the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, How much instruction beyond that? Well, after he's lowered in a basket uh, outside the Damascus city uh, to spare his own life because of some hateful Jews who saw him as a turncoat and wanted to kill him, Galatians also tells us he spent three years in the desert of Arabia, Uh, and he was studying the scriptures. He was preparing for ministry. The three years that the disciples had with the Lord Jesus in his public ministry, uh, Paul also had three years, and he was pouring over the scriptures. And did the Lord help him? I'm sure he did. Did Christ appear to him during that time? We don't know. Did Christ appear to Paul at other times? Yes, he did. They're recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. But those uh, encounters that you read of in the Acts during the three missionary journeys of Paul seem to be more directional than instructional, although obviously you can't totally dismiss the two. Paul, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Rome or whatever it might be. But obviously, the Spirit of Christ, because the members of the Trinity are inseparable, um, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct, and yet they are inseparable. And so the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so Jesus said, listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What do you mean, I will come to you? Um, well, he does through God, the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell us and live in us, who is our teacher and leads us and guides us into all the truth. So in that sense, certainly you could say that Paul was also instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But he received his gospel not from men, but from the Lord God himself. And uh, he made no apology for that. And I think it's uh, I think it's important perspective, but I think it's also, you raise a good point, because there is an ongoing instructional ministry by Jesus Christ today to his church through the Holy Spirit, and Paul certainly would have benefited from that ministry. Um, We don't know, you know, if when he was in Arabia that the Lord appeared to him in a vision or anything like that. Uh, We're not told in the Holy Scripture. That's not to say it's not possible, but um, we're certainly not told, and um, it would be pure speculation at that point. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can email us at tbl at net. That's tbl at net. and I think we have a live caller that's standing by. Uh, actually, we're calling him back, so um, I believe they're on the line now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, hi. Um, I want to ask a two-part question. Sure. Um, the first question is, in the Garden of Eden, if um, God wanted us to have free will, I was wondering why he told them not to eat up the tree. 
Okay, well, let me respond to that. Um, Free will presupposes choice. In other words, if man did not have a choice, then he really would not have been free. Um, In the truest sense, free will presupposes a choice. If all Adam and Eve could do was obey God, then they would be more robotic than they would be people. But part of being made in the Imago Dei in the image of God is the ability to choose. And so God gave them that choice during that period of testing. And so we read in Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And indeed, they chose to eat. So they were free. They were truly free people. Uh, Their wills were not coerced one way or the other. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, and there was a real legitimate choice that they had to make. Had they eaten from the tree of life, their uh, immortality would have been sealed forever. That, I think, is part of the reason why, after they sin, God places cherubim. Uh, It's a duel in Hebrew, two angels at the entrance to the gate of the Garden of Eden to keep man away from the tree of life with that flaming sword of fire. Why? Because had man eaten in his sinful state, he would be forever sealed in in an, in an unrighteous state. So God in his mercy as an expression of his grace kept man out of Eden from that point on. But no, there's a free will, free choice involved. That's the first question. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I appreciate that. Um, next question was when God uh, sent Jesus to this world, um, did he chance him, you know, um, straying or you know, getting lost, you know, sinning, basically? Well, when Jesus came to this world, he came as a sinless person. Understand, there was never a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. Jesus Christ has no beginning or end. He was not created. He is as much God as God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, a term that is ascribed to him in the Revelation, and the same phraseology is used to describe God the Father in the Old Testament, the beginning and the end. Um, There was a time, of course, when he didn't have a human body, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas, how God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, came over the womb of the Virgin Mary and took the eternal deity of Christ and added to it perfect, sinless humanity. He's God in human flesh. So he was conceived differently than you or me. Um, You were conceived with a natural father, as I was. We were born of perishable seed because death is written into our DNA. For the wages of sin is death. The day you eat from it, you shall surely die. So everyone who's ever come out of Adam's loins is a sinner And he's born with a heartbeat that is moving towards the grave. The day you're conceived, you're getting older and older and older and older until you die. Jesus was not like that. He was different from any of us. He did not have a sinful nature because his conception was supernatural. So Jesus was tested and tempted, the scripture says in Hebrews 2, in all ways as we are yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He knew no sin. 
Um, Jesus never knew sin, never committed an evil deed. Um, And again, Peter affirms the same thing in his first epistle. He is the spotless lamb of God. So the one who knew no sin, who had never sinned on the cross became sin. And Jesus knew that that would happen. Um, That's what Hebrews 10 affirms, that he would come as a sacrifice for sin. So he's leaving the, the glory and splendor of heaven to become a man for the sole purpose of becoming a sin-bearing substitute, to take the sin of the world upon himself. Uh, he that knew no sin became sin for us. Uh, the sin of all time was laid on Jesus Christ. He bore, Peter said, our sin in his body on the cross. So he left heaven. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, he's quoting the Old Testament. It says, When he, Christ, comes into the world, he says this, and it's a quotation from the Old Testament that speaks of Messiah, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Jesus said, behold, I have come in the role of, in the role of the book it is written of me to do your will. And it goes on how he, he came for one reason, to die. So his purpose for coming into this world was to die. For this cause, he said, I came into the world, speaking of the crucifixion uh, in the Gospels. That's why he came. No one took his life away from him, as John ten seventeen and 18 affirms. No one will take my life away from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down as seen in the manner in which he died. I have authority to take it up as seen in the fact that he was raised from the dead. He came to die because the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, as Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 affirms, could never remove sin. They were just symbolic. They were just shadows of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who would die a substitutionary death in our place. Um, does that make sense to you? Yes, sir. I appreciate Let me your... ask you a question, if I might, because it sounds to me like you're really searching and you're very, very thoughtful and methodical in your study of Scripture and you're trying to come to grips. At this point in your own spiritual journey with the Lord, if you were to put yourself on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I don't know, 100, I'm positive, and there's not a doubt at all in my mind. How certain are you if you died in the next second that you'd go to heaven? Are you 25% sure, 50, 75, 100? Where, where would you put yourself on that scale? Oh, I would put myself at 100. Why would you say 100? Because I trust in God's word that he has the power to save. and I'll take him at his word and I've gave my life to him. Okay. Would your good deeds get you into heaven? No, not at all. Very good. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. All right, great question. Any follow-up? Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I appreciate your time. All right, call back again if we can help. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. And our next caller would like to know, is there an example in Scripture that would model the godly way to be intimate with your spouse? Well, uh, there are some overarching principles, and then a whole book that's dedicated to it. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, God gives a lot of specific detail about uh, intimacy. The general overarching principle is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 
He says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 4, the wife does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's an assumption here in 1 Corinthians 7 that sex is not a weapon. It's not something that you manipulate another person with. It is something that God designed for intimacy in the marriage relationship that is to be expressed. And it comes with the mindset that your body is not your own. It's your wife's if you're a husband. And if you're a wife, your body's not yours. It's your husband's. So there's a mutual sharing that God intends for the husband and wife to know. Unfortunately, in our day, sex has been so distorted and perverted by the world that what God intended has really, truly, in a lot of even Christian homes have been lost. People bring pornography into the wedding bed, all kinds of wicked things. And some people have, in a pornographic way, even, I think, interchanged with the uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, John MacArthur gave a scathing review of a Christian evangelical pastor in the Northwest a couple of years ago saying that he took the Song of Solomon and made it into a a porn show. Um, I didn't hear his sermon series to evaluate that, but I do know that the Song of Solomon very tactfully, very respectfully, very wholly addresses the subject of sex. My wife, by the way, has done a series on the Song of Solomon for any of the ladies that may be listening. That I think is superb. It's excellent. It's biblically accurate. And I think you might find that uh, helpful, this caller. Let's go to our next uh, question. Very good. Uh, Our next uh, emailed question came in, and they write, I was saved recently, and I am praying to find the church the Lord wants me to attend for fellowship. To my surprise, every church I've visited, most of the women have very short hair. From personal Bible study, it appears that Paul spoke that a woman should have long hair in 1 Corinthians 11. Why is this topic not addressed in most pulpits today? Well, I wouldn't say it's not addressed at all. I, I've addressed it, but again, some of it becomes, um, you know, a, a definition of long, what you mean by, by long hair. And really, you could also equally say what you mean as it relates to a man for, for long hair. Uh, a passage of scripture that comes to my mind is First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul uses a covering, both physical and literal, of both a covering that a woman would put over her head, not to mention her hair itself, as a symbol of authority. Uh, uh, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, For the man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake. But woman for the man's sake, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Um, He says, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. 
there are some timeless principles here, some that might be culturally mandated depending on the society that you live in. What I think was taking place in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 was uh, women who came into the assembly who were unwilling to wear the traditional head covering because in that culture, the head covering was a symbol that you're under your husband's authority. And some women, for whatever reason, maybe it was hot or uncomfortable, removed the head coverings. And in so doing, they were really not acknowledging their husband's authority. There are some things that are timeless in their application and some things that are culturally mandated. For instance, in John 13, Jesus said, you know, you should have washed one another's feet. Well, is his point that when we get together at Christian socials that, you know, we should take off our shoes and wash each other's feet? I I don't think so. I think his point among lessons that he was teaching about forgiveness and cleansing, I think his major point was that of servanthood, that we're to serve each other, serve people who are unlike Jesus Christ, serve unconditionally. Those are some timeless principles there. Well, I think in some cultures, the head covering still carries a symbol of uh, submission. And so like if you go into Eastern Europe and to any of the evangelical churches, you can look across uh, a congregation and immediately tell you which ladies in the church are married and which women are single. All the married women have head coverings because in that culture to this day, though it's beginning to change, the head covering is a, is a symbol of her uh, submission to her husband's authority. And so um, he says if a woman does not cover her head, and he uses some hyperbole here in 11.6, let her also have her hair cut off. But, it is, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off uh, or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. So uh, what's interesting to me here is that, you know, God gave woman long hair as a symbol of her glory. And I think for a woman uh, to have her hair so short that you can't tell she's a woman is where you've crossed the line. It's much like when he says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, how long is long? Well, we can get really rigidly legalistic, but clearly from some of the historical records we have, from the first century, the hair length of men was much longer than it is today. It might mimic more what uh, people wore in the 70s, and probably the hair length of women was certainly much longer than it is today. So I think the principle, though, is that when you look at a man, you ought to be able to tell he's a man. You shouldn't look at a guy from behind, and then he turns around and say, whoop, that guy's got a beard. I thought that was a woman. Um, No, you ought to be able to tell a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And what I find very interesting is that very often lesbians who reject their femininity altogether will actually virtually cut their hair off. They reject it. And I know women today say, well, you know, it's it's so much work to deal with this hair every day. And no, that's your glory that God gave you the hair that he gave you. And again, I'm not legalistic here, but I do think that a woman's hair ought to look different from a man's. That's the principle. You ought to look at a woman's hair, and even if it's on a shorter scale, it certainly ought to look different from a man's hair. It shouldn't look like a man's haircut. And and if you um, 
violate that, then I think you are violating a biblical principle. So you say it's never addressed. I wouldn't say that. Uh, Sometimes in certainly legalistic uh, realms of uh, Christianity, uh, they will address a woman's hair length and they'll say she should never cut it. And you'll see some of these women, you know, with hair down to the floor almost. And and if a guy doesn't have super short hair, he's he's a you know he's a wicked man and he's out of fellowship with the Lord. And you know we need to paint some balance here. And I'm not saying to compromise Scripture. And two, we need to give people room to grow. I, I shared this illustration many many years ago in our church. When I was a new Christian, I went to a Baptist church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and a friend was there with me, and this guy had just come to Christ, brand new Christian. He had his hair in a ponytail that went all the way down to his waist, and my, did he get a mouthful when he went into that church. I was just embarrassed, and I, I, you know, I just thought, well, what is your problem? Give the guy some space. He's a new Christian. Let him grow up in Jesus Christ. God will deal with his hair length. And, and what if he was a non-Christian and I brought him in? I mean, what if he had earrings up and down his nose and across his eyebrows and in his fingernails or wherever people put him today? You know, then would he be welcomed? Well, I would hope so. You know, I would, I would hope so. I hope we leave room for unsaved people who look different, who dress different, who smell different to be able to come into our churches so that we have the opportunity to win them for, to Christ. And I hope we leave some room to give new believers uh, the opportunity to grow. And sometimes uh, Christians have forgotten what God saved them from and how patient God was with them. And uh, that some of us weren't so hot when God picked us up and saved us. And there was quite a few rough edges that he had to hone off as he shapes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So give people some space here to, to grow and uh, keep, keep that in perspective. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us as this person has to tbl at wagp.net. Now, this is a rather long uh, letter, so I'm going to shorten it a bit as much as I can. Uh, this listener is a church is getting ready to start the Bible study Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Now, uh, this listener has heard John MacArthur say that uh, apparently— Um, this particular uh, study is teaching people that the Holy Spirit leads believers uh, by speaking to them directly. According to Blackaby, when God gives an individual a message that pertains to the church, it should be shared with the whole body. As a result, extra-biblical words from the Lord are now commonplace even in some Southern Baptist circles. And that's what uh, John MacArthur says. This listener is interested in knowing whether uh, he should go ahead and participate in the study, uh, given that there are so many other good studies, and would like your opinion on this. Well, um, let me just say, I think Henry Blackaby is a good fellow. I think he loves Christ. I think he you know, sincerely wants to obey the Lord, and he's tried to encourage a lot of God's people to get into God's Word for themselves and to explore it. Do I agree with everything in experiencing God? No, I don't. Uh, Henry Blackaby is very congregational uh, in his church polity. I don't think um, he really understands or respects biblical eldership. Uh, Some people are very congregational and under the banner of the priesthood of the believer. 
which is certainly something that the Protestant reformers and all evangelical Christians ascribe to, that we don't have a, uh, an ecclesiastical hierarchy, uh, hierarchy above us that we have to go through to go to God, that we all have direct access to the Father, uh, and we also have a ministry from the Father to the church because God has made us all believer priests. So under, unfortunately, that banner, though, sometimes uh, the fact that there are leaders in the church who are called of God to lead and to um, uh, rule the church is diminished. And I, and I think he does that, uh, which, is un, which is unfortunate. I think John MacArthur has trouble with that, and I would, too, as many other evangelical leaders would. Uh, that, um, you know, they would say, well, you know, we, we need some uh, group of, you know, we vote on everything and uh, we're all believer priests and we need to, you know, share how God's leading us. And, um, and listen, the local assembly is not a democracy. Obey your leaders, submit to them. And I know even in some churches they have, you know, they, they, they um, divide up elders uh, from other ruling bodies in the church. Totally unbiblical. And uh, if you want to read a good book on eldership, there's one called Biblical Eldership. It's an excellent work. It's um, a guy's doctoral thesis uh, put on paper and pretty readable. And, uh, and I think it would walk you through this whole subject. But here's the thing when... When you put um, new Christians, baby Christians, carnal Christians, mature Christians, and non-Christians, because you'll have some in every church who know all the right words but really haven't been born again, you give them all an equal vote, you have a formula for disaster and split. Now, is in reference to extra revelational things beyond Scripture, I think in fairness to Blackaby, I don't think he would teach that. Um, and I'm not sure that John MacArthur has said what you've said. I'd have to read that for myself. I, I know there's not only his written material, but there was a series of videos that went with it. Maybe there was something that was said in the videos that appeared to be extra revelational. But I've heard the guy a few times speak publicly, and I certainly didn't pick that up, that he would see something outside of the realm of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit leads beyond the realm of Scripture. But I do think he would argue that within the guidelines of the Word of God, God can lead an individual. Does, does God want someone to go to Dallas Seminary or Western Conservative Baptist Seminary or Denver Seminary or Southwestern Seminary? Uh, you know, well, does God want him to go to seminary? Can, can God show them that he wants them to go to seminary? And, and, and if God wants them to, to go to seminary, does he, can he show them which seminary he wants to go? I, I think so. I think the Lord can direct our steps. Psalm 103 teaches that God's leading can be personal. But w where we've really crossed the line is when we become extra revelational, when we uh, say, well, God said such and such to me, um, where we have, you know, gone beyond the bounds of Scripture. And that becomes very dangerous. And really, though some of our charismatic slash Pentecostal brothers have been guilty of it, I don't think it's limited just to their realm of Christianity. Some of God's people in the more conservative realm of evangelicalism have done the same thing. 
And I think that's very dangerous. It's either Scripture alone is our final authority, or we're adding or taking away from Scripture. And God warns against such behavior and such thinking. Uh, I, I get kind of you know creepy. I, the people, I get creepy over hearing these folks who say, "Well, you know, God and I had this conversation, and they, you know, they write out almost the dictation of what God said to them." Um, you know, I just don't see the Lord leading in that way. God's never spoken to me in an audible voice. Uh, I think he, he did so before the canon of scripture was complete, that in many portions and in many ways, God gave direct revelation. But with the uh, closing of the canon of scripture, I don't think God speaks in audible voices to people and and dictates his uh, will to him. The will of God is found in the word of God. And when we go outside of that realm, we've entered into dangerous grounds and we are guilty of the very thing that every cult is predicated on. Every cult has some form of revelation, either in a vision, a dream, or a book that goes beyond the Holy Bible. Whether it's Joseph Smith whether it's Mary Baker Eddy with Christian Science, whether it's Ellen G. White with Seventh-day Adventism, every single cult has some revelation dreamer book that goes beyond the realm of the 66 books of the Word of God. And when we do that, we are on very, very dangerous ground and guilty of the very thing that cults are guilty of. All right, very good. A while ago, you were talking about a time when Jesus Christ did... Well, we'll get to that question in a second, but we've got a live caller. We always give live callers preference. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, Dr. Rorty and Rick. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Um, I had two questions. Um, I'm not questioning God's ways, for He's perfect in all of His ways, and I trust Him completely. Um, the reason for my questions is that I want to have a very clear understanding so that I may be a workman who's not ashamed and in, in witnessing to the unbeliever so that they can see their desperation um, to be reconciled to a holy God. So that's the point. Um, my question is, um, why the need for Christ um, scourging? Um, I can come up with multiple scriptures that demand death for sins, but not a demand for punishment exactly. Um, I understand death to be defined as an eternal separation from God, um, the wages of sin are death, but I'm having difficulty understanding the demand for the punishment and therefore his, scour- his scourging, his being beaten, and then the result for the torment in hell. Um, I know that Isaiah says by his word that we're healed um, by his wounds, but what's the scripture that demands the mandatory for those wounds? Well, um, Jesus had to die. He becomes a substitutionary. He dies a substitutionary death for people. How he would die, you know, could he have died by electrocution? Could he have died? Well, obviously not, not in that time in human history, because Messiah comes into the world in the fullness of time. Uh, The time frame for the Messiah is predicted in the Old Testament. I don't think it's by accident that the wise men uh, were associating the star that they saw in the sky 
with uh, the star of the with the time frame of Messiah because Daniel nine predicts the general time frame in which Messiah will come into the world. The seventy weeks prophecy of Daniel nine is mind blowing. I have some sermons on it. I, I need to preach them again sometime. It's been about fifteen years since I've preached that section of scripture, but God gives the time frame in which the Messiah will enter into the world. And since Messiah is going to die a death, he's going to die a death that is um, fitting with that time frame. And in that time frame of human history, even before man thought it up, you mentioned uh, Isaiah 53, which is written approximately 700 years before Christ, You know, it speaks of the fact that he will be pierced through for our iniquity. Uh, Of course, crucifixion didn't exist when Isaiah pens those words. Uh, Crucifixion doesn't come into play until about 250 B.C. It's perfected and becomes a broad-based form of uh, capital punishment under the Roman government. But since Messiah is predicted to come into the time frame when Rome is in rule, and since Rome is... um, crucifying people as a means of capital punishment. And since Jesus is guilty of a capital crime of treason, at least in the eyes of Rome, uh, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. They can't get him on a religious charge, so they get him on a political charge. So it's worthy of crucifixion. Then what we see happening are the events that are associated typically with a crucifixion. It was not uncommon for a man to be scourged, to carry the crossbar, and then to be brought to the place of public crucifixion where he would then be tied or nailed to a cross. Um, In this case, the prophet indicated he would be pierced through, and so Jesus was nailed to a cross. Um, I think initially Pilate was hoping to scourge him and leave it at that to get his, um, his account clean so he could get rid of Jesus. But that would not satisfy the crowds. And so, again, the prophets predicted his beating. Uh, Read before Isaiah 53, back up a couple chapters. You know, his beard's going to be plucked out and so forth. And um, he'll be marred more than any man, the prophet says. You know, you see these pictures sometimes with, you know, Jesus with a crown of thorn and just a little trickle of blood you know, coming down his face. Uh, Now, the Bible said he would be marred more than any man. That's what Isaiah the prophet predicted. And so to make that a reality, they they beat him with their clubs. They hit him with their fists. uh, They bruised him. They beat him. Uh, He was bloodied. I mean, he was a horror show to look at. If you ever seen someone really badly beaten up, it's, it's a terrible sight. And Jesus was beaten up in that fashion. Uh, So again, uh, it's the death of Jesus on the cross that becomes a, and it's not just a physical death, I might say, it's also a spiritual death. There on Golgotha, at some point in time, and God alone knows the time frame, certainly darkness comes upon the world from 12 noon till 3 p.m. for a three-hour period uh, of the six hours of the crucifixion. God alone knows the exact moment, but there's a time frame on the cross where he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the father forsook the son. He experienced the spiritual death 
that we should know in that awful place called hell. So he dies physically. And again, he dies physically, the means that he dies, because that's the time frame he's going to come into human history. And he dies spiritually uh, there on Golgotha as a payment for our sin. Literally, he sheds his blood because the life is in the blood. And God, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, from the beginning, after Adam and Eve had made coats of skin, God said, that's not suitable. And so the first death in all the universe takes place. And there's an innocent animal that is killed. And there are rivers of blood that flow all the way through the Old Testament scriptures, all pointing to the ultimate sinless blood sacrifice of Messiah. So the timing and everything is perfect. Um, God has him come into the world when he does for the kind of death he would die. So there'd be no mistake. Uh, he's prepared the Roman world, a Roman road system, a Roman peace, a Roman language, uh, in which to spread the gospel and to carry the message of salvation. All right. Very good. Thank you. We have time for one more follow-up question. Earlier, you had mentioned that, uh, there was a time when Jesus Christ did not have a body and at that, um, and that at Christmas, rather, we celebrate his coming in bodily form. This caller would like to know what scriptures he can read about this. Well, um, the fact that Jesus is eternal. Uh, in the beginning, you could just you might want to just go to our website and download the message on John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Well, again, here's the word. He's in the beginning. He's with God. He's with the Father, and he is God. Well, who is the word? Well, he's specifically identified, and the word became flesh. So again, there was a time when he didn't have a human body, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Come and listen Sunday's sermon. Uh, I'll be dealing with some of these very issues this coming Sunday at Community Bible Church, and I think your answer will get a fuller explanation. And don't forget, uh, in another week uh, from tomorrow, we start our Wednesday services again. That's right. Uh, And so uh, you don't want to miss that. Um, Coming up a week from uh, tomorrow at Community Bible Church, our Wednesday evening services will uh, begin over again for the fall, and we're very excited about that. Well, it's out of time once again, but we if we didn't get to your question, we're sorry, but hopefully maybe next time, if God will allow, we'll answer some more of the questions that came in. Hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. 